think I can do this in 30 minutes. Maybe 35. Are you ready? Here we go. Where did I hide? Oh. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 1. We've been looking at uh, the source of Matthew's prophecy about the virgin. And uh, if you go back there and read that whole chapter and study it, you don't find anything in there about the Messiah. So how does Matthew do what he does? There are four levels of Jewish interpretation. And I have to start with that to explain to you what Matthew is doing. Uh, first level is Mishnah, and Mishnah means to repeat. Uh, if a guy wants to know uh, from a rabbi, what am I supposed to do for the Day of Atonement or whatever, he tells him what to do, and then he goes and does it, and then he goes back to his job. And so there's no real questioning, why do I have to do this or any of that? It's just kind of a repetition. Gomorrah means to complete. Uh, completing a study, uh, finishing up a whole story. Say you want to write a biography of someone. Uh, I told our, our English teacher that I was writing my autobiography. And she said, oh, who about? <laughs> no. But um, uh, I, I'm on page 60 or 90-something of my autobiography, and I'm having kind of fun with it, but I've got a lot more to go. Um, uh, you can't really complete an autobiography. You know, you have to die first before you complete it. But you can complete a biography if somebody has died. And so that's the idea of what a Gomorrah is, completing something. Midrash is a completely different thing. Midrash means literally to thresh grain and try to find the kernel you want. So let's say that you have a wheat field and you go through and combine all that wheat and then you take it and blow it into the back of a truck and then you start searching through there to find the kernel you want. That's what the word means, midrash. And then Zohar is a, a different level yet. All these, this guy here can use this level, this level, and this level. This guy here can use this level and this level. Okay? But when you get to Zohar, this is the highest level. He can use all the levels. And this word means mystic prophetic or enlightened. And this, this would be uh, someone who could go back to the story of Adam and Eve. And there has been a book written uh, that Adam and Eve, when they came together to produce children, this was the beginning of God making his bride. Now, I talked about that earlier. Uh, God's bride would be Israel and then finally the church. So a Zohar would be going 
to a different level of scripture, something that you don't normally think when you read a scripture. You read a historical account, and then you go back to that and you look at what was underneath it, what the point of it is underneath. So, Mishnah is to repeat, and that's like the Gospel of Mark. Mark's Gospel says nothing about the birth of Christ, has nothing at all. He starts with John the Baptist's ministry. Mark was a servant or a slave in Israel. He lived in Jerusalem. He tells his own story in his book, uh, at least a part of it. And Mark is the guy who just wanted to write down what Jesus did. And so it's action. Where did Mark get his gospel? According to the early church, Peter asked Mark to come to Rome to write down his messages. And so Mark is, is Peter's sermons. It starts abruptly and it ends abruptly. It's not complete. If you remember reading the Gospel of Mark, you can go to the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark and you'll see that there's a line in the text and then they add some more stuff. There are four different endings to the Gospel of Mark in the manuscript because Gospel of Mark ends with the empty tomb. It doesn't talk about any of the appearances. It doesn't go into any more detail. Jesus dies, he is buried, and Sunday morning they see the tomb is empty. And, that's, and the women go home and don't say anything to anybody. That's how Mark ends. So it starts abruptly, ends abruptly. And it's the first book translated when they go into another culture. When Wycliffe translators, Bible translators, go into another culture, first book they translate is Mark. Unless it's a Muslim culture, then the first book they translate into that language is Proverbs. Because Proverbs is like the Koran. Koran is written in a series of surahs, which are like Proverbs. So Mark is very simple. Lots of action. Lots of power shown in Mark. Jesus' power over disease and demons and death. Um, Gomorra is the next one, and it, it means complete, and this is like the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel is the most complete of all the Gospels. Luke's the only one that tells us that the angel Gabriel came to John the Baptist's father before John was born. Remember his name? Zechariah, and his wife's name, Elizabeth. Elizabeth means God keeps his word, and Zechariah means the Lord remembers. So the Lord remembers and keeps his word, and Gabriel, the man of God, comes and speaks to him, terrifies him. He's, he's doing his duty in the temple, which is the main duty of the priest. They were chosen for a month at a time. They were chosen by lot. He and his wife had tried to have kids all their lives and never had any, and they were old by this time. And Gabriel comes to him and appears before the altar, and Zechariah is terrified. That's the first thing that Scripture always says when an angel shows up. You can imagine coming in here by yourself, and all of a sudden there's somebody else in here. Uh, angels are always men. Uh, angels never have wings. That's all medieval art. Uh, biblical angels have... Uh, are just people. They're men. But there's something about them that's different. And we don't know what it is. They seem to know some things. And this angel tells 
Ezekiel, uh, 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 Zechariah, uh, the Lord remembers that he's going to have a child. And he says, how can I know this? He said, well, you're not going to be able to talk because you didn't believe me. You won't be able to talk until the baby's born. So he comes out, and he's making signs, and they finally give him a, something to write on, and he writes down that he saw an angel. And so sure enough, she becomes pregnant. And so that whole story is right there at the beginning of Luke. Also, after she becomes pregnant, in the sixth month of her pregnancy, the same angel goes to Mary and says, you are chosen by God. And Mary's terrified, of course. And finally, the angel says, uh, the one who will uh, overshadow you is the Holy Spirit, and you will bear the Son of God. And she says, let it be to me according to your word. Now, only Luke tells us this. Only Luke says Gabriel. And then more angels come and reveal themselves to shepherds. And the shepherds come and say, you know, it's all Luke. Nobody else tells us all these details. Luke has all the details because Luke is a Gomorrah. It's complete. Only Luke tells us about the ascension of Jesus at the end. No one else tells us that. Matthew, Mark, and John never mention the ascension. Only Luke tells us that Jesus went up into heaven. A lot of details, see? It's complete. It's the whole story of Jesus from before he was born until after his resurrection. He appeared for 40 days and then was taken up into heaven. The book of Acts is also written by Luke, so Luke really does want to complete. You see? And Luke tells again about the ascension of Jesus in the first chapter of Acts. So Luke is the only one in the whole New Testament witness that tells us that Jesus went up into heaven while they watched. Isn't that interesting? A lot of detail. Um, Luke's the only one that tells us about Jesus in the temple at age 12. Luke's the only one that tells us about being Jesus taken into the temple on the eighth day to be circumcised and meeting Anna and Simeon. You remember the old man who, who was told by God, you will see my salvation before you die. All the details are in Luke because it's complete. Midrash. Threshing the grain, looking through everything. Drosh means to search, to try to find something. This is Matthew. What Matthew does with the virgin birth, he sees that Jesus was born of a virgin. And he wants to find that word somewhere in the Old Testament. He's searching through the grain to find the kernel he wants and he finds the word virgin, not in the Hebrew text, but in the Greek translation that's about 250 years old. And he finds the word virgin there. Parthenos. And so he takes that verse, and, and luckily it has the word Emmanuel in there. And Emmanuel is God with us, and that's Jesus. And so he's basically just picking a word and saying, see, that proves my argument. That's what Midrashic scholars do. Now, we don't study Scripture like that. You know, at, at DCC, we use the historical exegetical method. In other words, we look up the background and we read the Greek text or the Hebrew text and try to find out what it really means. And that's all well and good. But that was invented in the middle part of the 1800s. 
Nobody ever looked at Scripture that way before now, for the last 150 years. Isn't that amazing? And so, and the problem with looking at it that way, it becomes just kind of boring and pedantic and scholarly. Most of the Ph.D. papers I read are ho-hums, you know, just boring. But these guys are anything but boring. Midrash can use any scripture in any way they want to. Like, for example, I told you earlier about the end of chapter 2 in Matthew, where it says, in the prophets he will be a Nazarene. And you have to go to the Hebrew text of Isaiah chapter 11 to find that. See, he just picked and chose. He just chose whatever made his point. And to a Jew, a Midrashic scholar, a rabbi, remember, remember what his real name was? Matthew's his Greek name. His real name was Levi. He was a priest. He was a Levitical priest. And so he knew all the priestly imagery, and so he has a lot more of the priestly background. He's also on the level of a king. The, the priests were the rulers in Israel. The people paid their tithes to the priests. You remember this? So this guy is the one who writes about the Magi. Luke never mentions the, the, the three kings or however many there were. Only Matthew. Luke wants to show that Jesus relates to the common people. Matthew wants to show that Jesus was a ruler, king of the Jews. And all the way through Matthew, Matthew quotes exactly 50 Old Testament scriptures to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, and he quotes every one of them out of the Greek Old Testament. Why 50? Remember what the number 5 means? Grace. The number 10, which is a multiple, means sufficient. The number 50 is sufficient grace. 50 is the number for the Holy Spirit. Pentecost comes exactly 50 days after Passover. That's when the Holy Spirit came down on the church. And so he chooses the number of the Holy Spirit, 50, to prove that Jesus is the Messiah to the Jews. But then his followers, who were Greek Jews, take all his notes at his death and go up into Syria, in my personal opinion, and wrote Matthew out of Matthew's notes. And that's why they quote only the Greek. Though Matthew does say, in the prophets, and refer to the Hebrew text of uh, Isaiah 11.1. 1. One more, Zohar. <coughs> Zohar is John. And John really is a mystic. He's a prophet. He wrote Revelation. He was enlightened. He was taught by the Holy Spirit. He had been, he wrote later than all the others. These guys wrote in the 60s AD. He wrote in the 90s. John did. Okay? So, <clears throat> John's the guy that uses all symbolism, he loves the numbers. You look at the book of the Gospel of John, he builds the whole book on seven signs, seven miracles that Jesus did, starting with the one that's not mentioned in any of the other Gospels, the first miracle, changing water to wine. 
And that is very similar to what Moses did, changing water into blood, his first public miracle. In the New Testament, wine is blood. You see what I'm doing? See what, see what John's doing? It's all symbol. Symbol, symbol, symbol throughout John. He interprets Jesus' miracles symbolically. When Jesus heals a man born blind, by the way, the ultimate sign that Jesus is the Messiah is that he healed blind people. Nobody in the history of Israel had ever done that. And the prediction is in, is in Isaiah chapter 61 that he will give sight to blind eyes. Remember? Isaiah 61. He'll give sight to blind eyes. That's quoted in the fourth chapter of Luke by Jesus himself. And then he said, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the one who was to come. And they tried to kill him for it, for claiming that. Remember that? Tried to take him out and throw him off the cliff. So the proof that Jesus is a Messiah, he healed blind people. In John 9, he heals a man born blind. Nobody had ever done that before. Read throughout the Old Testament, no prophet. Even Elijah and Elisha never healed a blind person, but Jesus did. And John takes that and says, you say you see, but you are really blind to the Pharisees. You're still in your sins. And this guy who was healed from being born blind tells the Pharisees, you want to be his disciples too? Have you read the ninth chapter? It's hilarious. And they say, you're out of here. You're kicked out of the synagogue. And he said, I don't care. I can see, you know. I don't care about going to synagogue. I don't need you people. I can see. It's a wonderful passage. All the symbols. What's the last miracle in John? Raising Lazarus from the dead. The seventh miracle. Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Jesus goes into the tomb symbol. When he comes to Peter, remember he's washing all their feet at the Last Supper? He comes to Peter and Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, yes. And what I'm doing now you don't understand, but later on you'll get it. Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. No way. Jesus' answer is classic. He says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. He's not talking about his feet there, is he? He's symbolically talking about cleansing. And he goes on and says, all of you are clean except for one of you, Judas. See, and I've wondered, why did Jesus choose Judas? He was the only Judean. All the others were Galileans. They were, they were from up north and Judas was from down south. Which may be why he... Tried to force Jesus' hand to conquer the Romans. I think that's what he was looking for. But he was thinking physically instead of spiritually. But John is an amazing writer, and he writes the book of Revelation and plays with all those numbers. And guess how many signs or guess how many visions there are in the book of Revelation? Seven. Seven's the key word in the book. So my view of this is that Matthew saw that Jesus was born of a virgin. And he wanted to go back and find the, the word in the text 
And he couldn't find it in the right spot in the Hebrew text, but he found it in the Greek. And so he picks the word Parthenos out of the Greek text and combines it with the word Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us through a virgin because that's how it happened. Only Matthew and Luke talk about Jesus being born of a virgin. No one else in all the Christian literature of the first century ever mentions the virgin birth. I think it was a I think it was an embarrassment to the early church. It was certainly an embarrassment to Mary. I mean, you can imagine a woman becoming pregnant out of wedlock in that day, a Jew, a good girl, and she's pregnant, even her own husband to be. Joseph didn't believe it. Well, see, an angel came to me, and, uh, and God made me pregnant. Can you imagine? And Joseph says, <laughs> yeah, sure he did. And sure, I'm going to divorce you. And so he was going to divorce her until the angel revealed to him in his sleep that he needed to marry her because what was inside her was holy. And then he believed. It's, it's amazing. Amazing story. And the way scripture is used by these four guys is completely different from the way we use scripture today. Very unique. I want to stop, see what questions you have. Is it a prophecy of the virgin birth? I don't think Isaiah meant it that way, but Matthew did, and Matthew's led by the Spirit too. And so it becomes a prophecy of the virgin birth in Matthew. Luke knows it. Luke knew he was born of a virgin, but Luke never referred to any Old Testament passage. Yeah, it's funny how all these guys dealt with Jews, and technically when you read through the Gospels, you're still in Old Testament. New Testament doesn't start, just like I said last night, New Testament doesn't start until Acts chapter 2. And the first Gospel sermon is Peter, and he says, the Jesus you crucified, God has made both Lord and Messiah. What else? Any other comments or questions? This is fascinating to me that, that there are four levels of interpretation and they happen to fit with the four Gospels. The symbolism and the mysticism of John. Good question. Um, just studying the, when I began studying the, the Talmud and studying the interpretation, hold on a second, I keep getting a call. Hello. Yeah, who's this? Uh, you're calling a wrong number and you just keep calling it. No. That's all right, thank you. I'm sorry, wrong, this isn't Jim's phone? She called twice Saturday. 
And, uh, you know, I didn't get to the phone in time or I'd have told her you're calling the wrong number. Anyway, back to your question. When I first started reading Talmud, I ran across these four levels of interpretation and I really dug into them. Uh, Encyclopedia Judaica, the Jewish Encyclopedia, has a tremendous amount of information on all four of these levels. And I began to see how they connected with the Gospels. And the fact that Matthew quotes Isaiah, and Isaiah 7 in this instance has nothing to do with a, a prediction about the Messiah. He's talking to Ahaz, and he's saying the Lord will give you a sign, and this pregnant woman here is going to have a child, name him Emmanuel. And the sign to Ahaz was the name Emmanuel. God is with us. You know, you look at, at the way Matthew does it, and he just kind of takes that out of there and puts it in the New Testament and says, see, Scripture says, virgin. And to him, to a Madrashic scholar, the fact that you find the word in the text proves the argument. He's born of a virgin. The word's in the text. That proves it. Isn't that interesting? Completely different from the way we look at Scripture. And yet he can use the other levels that are more like ours. For example, if you read on in Matthew, look at chapter 2. When the Magi come and Herod calls the teachers of the law together, remember? And he says, uh, where is the Messiah to be born? And they say, in Bethlehem of Judea. And then they quote Micah 5.2. So that would be something that he could use or he could use. And John almost never quotes Old Testament. Very little quotation because he is, he is showing what Jesus really means is the embodiment of all the Old Testament. They're really different, aren't they? You look at the Gospels and, you know, you can kind of line up Luke and Matthew sort of together a little bit. You've seen uh, Gospel parallels probably. And there's some of Mark there. Some scholars say that Mark wrote it and then Matthew and, and, and Luke copied off of it, used Mark as a source. There's no evidence for that at all. Mark is clear up in Rome when he writes it. Matthew's in Jerusalem. And Luke is traveling with Paul. So no, uh, they didn't copy each other. There's no collusion at all. If, they, if, they, if there was collusion, you'd think they'd agree on some things. But you know, you've got one, one of these guys says that when Jesus was going into Jericho, he healed a blind man. Uh, Mark says when he was coming out of Jericho, he healed a blind man. And the blind man's name was Bartimaeus. He knew him. And Matthew says there were two blind men, and he did it in Jericho. See, if they were copying each other, I don't think there would be those differences. To me, that gives even more believability that these guys are telling the truth as they see it. It's just like if we went to trial and we had four different people that were going to give evidence of some accident we saw or something. If we saw it from four different perspectives, we'd give four different conclusions to it, wouldn't we? But if we got together beforehand and said, let's say it this way, then it wouldn't, it'd be perjury. And these guys are not perjuring themselves. They're telling the truth from the perspective that they see it. 
And I don't believe these guys were Greek typewriters that God pounded a message out on. I think he gave them the Holy Spirit and let them use their own personalities, their own backgrounds. And Luke says at the beginning of his book, you know, starting at the very beginning, first four verses, he says, I interviewed people who were eyewitnesses. And I wrote out everything in order that they, relieve, that they uh, revealed to me. So he got his like a historian. He was a doctor and a historian. His vocabulary is, is huge. Matthew's is also huge. John's very simple. You know, when we remember we translate Greek, we start out with John's gospel because it's just so easy. It just repeats the same simple little words over and over, but it's the most profound and intense and deep of all the gospels. And Mark, Mark's just easy. Yeah, and Archaean Hologos. Katheos and Hologos. Yeah. Yeah, you know what's funny about that? He was a missionary with Paul on the first missionary journey and completely failed, at least from Paul's perspective. When he got to Turkey, he looked at that rough terrain and he said, I'm not going there. And so he stayed on the ship, and he was a young man, and he was homesick, and he went back home to Jerusalem. So on the second missionary journey, Barnabas says, let's bring Mark along. And Paul says, ain't going to happen. And Luke describes this in Acts 15.6. He said they got in a shouting match. If you've ever seen Jews disagree, la, 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 la. You know, I mean, they're really potent. And they disagreed with each other, and they shouted at each other. It was such a, a, a sharp dispute that they separated. And Mark went with Barnabas, his cousin, down to the island of Cyprus. And Paul uh, took Silas with him and went back and visited the churches he had established on the first journey. And then there's a third missionary journey in the book of Acts. And then, folks, there is a fourth missionary journey not in the book of Acts where Paul goes to Spain when he drops Timothy off in Ephesus, drops Titus off in Crete, and takes ship all the way to Spain. And all the ancient churches in Spain are called the Church of San Paulo, the Church of St. Paul. Isn't that interesting? You know what the ancient churches are called in India? Thomas, St. Thomas. And in Damo, India, is his tomb. His tomb is a pile of rocks where they stoned him to death. See, these people, these are real people. And God would not let Paul go east. Remember that? He said, go west, young man, go west. No, he said, he showed him a vision of a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And so Paul went west instead of east because the east was already taken by Thomas. And the people of the East would have a harder time with the gospel than the people of the West. There's just so much to know here, folks. And it's just fascinating, absolutely fascinating. When you start studying the gospels and you really study them in depth and you compare them with each other, it is the strangest thing. Mark and Luke say there was one demoniac in Gadara. Matthew says there were two. See, two is a number of a fact to the Jews. And if there were two, there was also one, right? And there were two blind men healed here and one up in here. 
And then each of these guys says, Jesus rode a colt, a foal of a donkey, into Jerusalem. Matthew says, the donkey was there too, the mother. And they led the mother ahead, and the colt followed the mother with Jesus on the colt. See, he's got two. And by the way, that's predicted clear back in Genesis 49 that he would ride the colt of a donkey. When Jacob prophesied to his sons, he told Judah, he will tie his colt to the choicest branch. There's that word branch again. And he will uh, leave the donkey there. You can go back and look. Genesis 49, just fascinating. All the stuff in Genesis 49. When he talks to Judah, Judah is the, is the tribe from which Jesus came, you know. And so he tells Judah, he's going to wash his robes in the blood of grapes. In other words, he's going to shed his blood. Predicted all the way back there in Genesis 49. Read Judah's promise. Read the prediction that Jacob, old dying Jacob, leaning on his staff, blessing his sons. And then he goes to bed and he never gets up. But he'll get up later on. All of us will. Let's pray. Father, your word is so incredible. We thank you for it. We do believe it, even though it is unbelievable sometimes. Thank you for each person that's here. Father, I pray that your spirit will be poured out on this church and on the leaders here and that you'll bring personal individual growth here but also growth in numbers and I pray that everybody in this church will learn to serve I thank you that you have given us and guarded your word for us for all these centuries and brought it down to us so we can read it and understand it and find Jesus and find you when we find him We thank you for him.